0: I'm Emily Williams,
1: and I'm Gavin McIntyre.
0: And this is Understand South Carolina from the Post and Courier. This month, Spoleto USA, a major performing arts festival that's held annually here in Charleston, announced its 2022 programming lineup. That's always exciting, but it especially is this year after 2 years of the COVID-19 pandemic. For the first time since 2019, the festival will host international performers, and after being postponed twice, Spoleto audiences are going to see the world premiere of a highly anticipated opera. It's called Omar, and it's based on the autobiography of Omar ibn Said, a Muslim scholar who was made to board a ship bound for Charleston, where he was enslaved and sold. We told Omar's story on this podcast last June, and we thought that now, with the show on the calendar for Spoleto 2022, would be a great time to revisit it. When we first shared this podcast, Gavin and reporter Jennifer Barry hawes had just published a big project on Omar's life. They did research here in Charleston, traveled to North Carolina where Omar lived out his later years, and made a reporting trip to Senegal to try to find the place where Omar had called home. So Gavin, what's happened since we last talked about this story? What was the response to it?
1: It was really popular and a lot of people received it well, which was awesome to see. Uh, we put a little over two years into the Omar project up to that point, And to see it embraced by educators and researchers and just people in the community was amazing to hear.
0: Now that it looks like the premiere of the opera is happening this year, what is it like for you, you know, after you've invested all this time into Omar's story?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. It's a uh, it's gonna be great when it finally picks up in in May and you know we begin reporting on the rehearsals and everything. But we started this and I was just going through photos the other day and looking looking at uh, some of the timestamps. And the first rehearsal or workshop I attended was in September of 2019. So to you know be here at this point is kind of amazing and exciting because you know we got kind of see it to fruition. Uh, I've only seen like you know, bits and pieces of the opera. So kind of to see it all come together and hear Rhiannon and Michael and John's vision and, you know, and the work that, you know, the performers are going to do is going to be pretty just exciting. And I'm really happy for people to kind of see it for themselves and for me to see it for myself too.
0: When we talked about this story last June, you'd said there was something good about it being postponed and that you had more time and you were able to, learn more about Omar's life. So in the last year, in all of these conversations that you've gotten to have about the story, have you learned anything new about Omar?
1: Me and Jennifer have, through the Pulitzer Center, have gotten to talk a lot about our project with, you know, different schools and and classes. And I think it's the things people have picked up on. One thing has been like the idea of identity has been something that seems to struck a chord with a lot of people and about the division that you can have within yourself and figuring that out when you're in like the state that Omar was in has something that I've thought a lot about. What does that mean exactly and how does that apply today? And that's something I've seen a lot of teachers, you know, discuss with their students about like what's perception that someone's put put on you that you that doesn't fit you and how do you try and go against that in your own life. So that's something that's been really cool to like discuss and talk about, and you know, figure out you know for myself. And continuing on the story, the next project for Omar will be you know the the opera. So it'll be cool then to see like what people think of that.
0: Right. The story continues. Now let's revisit our episode from June twenty twenty one.
1: So when I initially got brought into this story, I didn't know anything about Omar. I didn't know his, his story, where he came from. So the initial research was just really just like, who was he? And then part of that was his autobiography that he wrote and all the research that had been done before. And so what I knew about him slowly progressed over time, but he was a Muslim scholar from the Toro region in Senegal and was captured in a raid during sure exactly who captured him but he was taken and enslaved in Charleston where he was bought by as he describes a cruel evil wicked man and during his time in Charleston he would end up escaping and then ending up in the Fayetteville area in North Carolina where he'd be uh, recaptured and jailed and where he would write on the walls in uh, Arabic these two brothers, the Owens, James and John, they end up buying him from someone in Charleston and he spends the rest of his life there. So that was kind of like my initial understanding of him. And part of the reason why we went to Senegal is like, who is this man who was captured and enslaved? Because when he arrives in Charleston, he's 37. And so he's near middle age and he's lived a life before arriving here. So, you know, that was a big part of the reason why we went to Senegal.
0: What were the big questions that you went into this project with, what were those main questions that you were trying to answer? Whether or not a clear answer was available, what were those big questions?
2: There are a lot of really big questions about Omar that had to do with more fundamentally, more deeply, who really was he in his of hearts? And then practically speaking, where was he from exactly? Uh, we knew he was from Fututoro because he wrote that, he was born there. But where? It's a pretty big region in northern Senegal, all along the Senegal River. Where was he from? On a deeper level, was Omar a Christian, or was he a Muslim in his heart? He was Muslim when he was brought over here. He remained very devout, but was baptized in the Christian church of his enslavers later in his life. And so the question remained, uh, did he really convert? Was he, in fact, Muslim still in his heart? And to me, one of the most interesting parts of going to Senegal was meeting with imams in these areas around Futa who could talk about the closeness between Christianity and Islam and how the great prophets of Christianity and also Judaism were in uh, the Quran And Jesus is a great prophet of the Quran. And so when Muslims uh, came to America and were exposed to Christianity, those names and people in the sacred texts were not strangers. To me, it was really interesting to see how Omar likely bridged Christianity and Muslim beliefs so that he could both be part of a faith community in the U.S. Uh, and while he was enslaved, but still retain his Muslim identity.
1: Traveling over there, I mean, we had so many questions we were trying to answer in so little timing. Just, you know, those, the basic ones, because he lives like very vague details about where he's initially from in his life. So we're just like, who was his mother? Who was his Father, you know, what was his place of birth? Because he says it's a region, but it doesn't really give a town where he's from. And, you know, he says, I studied for 25 years in the Futa and Bundu. So we're just thinking, like, what was, what did that encompass? You know, who were his teachers? And then just what was his faith, you know, and what did it mean to him? I think that was one of the big ones we were trying to find while on our trip.
0: So, of course, the plans changed along the way of when this would exactly happen. So take us back to last year, 2020, early 2020. What was the plan originally?
2: Well, originally the plan was that we would go to Senegal in spring of 2020. And Gavin and I got onto a plane in Charleston and we're all excited. He posted on Instagram when we were getting ready to leave. We flew to Atlanta And while we were in flight, uh, President Trump announced that travelers coming back to the U.S. from Europe would not be allowed to enter because of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, We had no idea that was going on. So when we landed, we headed to get some food before we flew uh, overseas overnight. And while we were getting some Chinese food, our phones started blowing up. My husband and my immediate editor, Glenn Smith, were texting me? Are you listening to President Trump's speech? And have you heard? And all of a sudden, it was pretty chaotic uh, in the airport. And we were just trying to figure out what to do at the last minute. Should we go? Should we not go? And it, in those moments, we decided not to go because there was so much unknown.
1: And at the time, it was very, you know, <laughs> a sad kind of mood because we were very, you know, excited to to go to Senegal in 2020. But it ended up being, you know, sort of a blessing because From that, we were able to spend another year, you know, researching Omar's life and working with our team that would we travel with when we return um, this year in February. So it gave us a lot more time to really dig into the story and kind of plan out more of our trip because we were ready, but I think we were even more prepared this year than I think we would have been last year, and we were also able to have Abdullahi Ghieh, a professor and translator there, join us, who I don't think we would have had when we were initially going to travel. So it really gave us, you know, I think the resources to come out with the story that people saw this past weekend.
0: You mentioned one of the people who was able to be with you there on that team during your reporting trip. So tell me more about that team. Who were the people involved? Of course, We're talking to both of you today, but there are multiple people who really contributed to this reporting process. Who joined you on that trip?
2: We were joined by Mamram Sek, who really functioned as sort of the leader of our group while we were in Senegal. Mamram is a professor of linguistics in Dakar and is just very well connected. He studies uh, oral narratives. He had a lot of expertise that was very important. He also spoke French and spoke Wolof, which is one of the primary uh, languages people in Senegal speak. So Mamram was sort of the leader of our group, and then Abdoulaye Gia, the translator and Arabic teacher, was also just critical. Abdoulaye also descends from Sheikh Musa Kamra, who is a very revered intellectual in futa toro, and having Abdoulaye there as someone who knew Futa, knew the region, was really, really helpful, and he he and Mamram were just really wonderful to work with. Uh, we also hired a driver, uh, Yusubaji, and Mamram had a driver from his university, and also brought a French graduate assistant. So that was sort of our little entourage. We traveled all over Senegal and Futa with, and they each brought expertise and knowledge that so was just super helpful in telling them our story.
0: And you're. Reporting process, of course, took you to Senegal, but it started in Charleston, and Charleston was the place where Omar... And also about 40% of enslaved people who were taken to the United States landed. But it also took you to North Carolina, to uh, Gavin, you you had mentioned that, of course, part of his life was there as well. And that came first. So where did you go in North Carolina and what were you able to maybe physically see there? Or who were you able to meet to start filling in that story?
1: Our first trip was in 2020 when we had, you know, scheduled to go to Senegal the first time. And the first trip, we went to the Owen Hill Plantation, which is where Omar would spend the later years in his life and ultimately die. Um, We went to the church where he was baptized, First Presbyterian in Fayetteville. Um, We went to, you know, a few other churches where we thought he might have attended or the Owens might have attended. Any kind of connection we could find, we were kind of going went to the library there we went to the mosque in Fayetteville which is named after him and attended a friday prayer service and spoke with the former imam there adam baia who you know who's very involved in bringing omar uh, more attention
0: fayetteville was the place where omar spent his his later years and eventually died did you find the place where he was buried there
2: We did. We did. And it wasn't easy to find because it's not marked and there's no indication of where Owen Hill plantation was, much less where Omar was buried. But we were able, after some doing, to find a man who knew a man, who knew a woman, you know, that sort of thing, who knew someone who knew where it was. And uh, so we did finally find it. And we were kind of walking around this weedy, viney, thorny area, and Gavin noticed a short brick wall. And that wall enclosed the Owen patriarch and his wife and three of their grandchildren. And according to the family stories, Omar's buried in that area. But his gravestone had, had been vandalized or whatnot. But anyway, it's not there and it's not marked. But it was still really remarkable to stand there. It was sort of a misty, rainy day and kind of fit the mood of the place that where Omar died was just so neglected. I feel
0: like some of the things that this story did was address some of the maybe misconceptions or assumptions that have been made about Omar. What were some of those narratives, right, that were that were created about Omar? And maybe what were some of those layers that you that you peeled back of, Okay, this is maybe what was told about him and and this is what might be the truth about him?
1: a big one was, like, he's an Indian or Arabian prince, you know, this this figure coming from Africa who was, you know, because he, he carried himself with a certain stature there that people was like, he must have been this prince, or he must have been, that's the reason why he's over there, he was exiled, or, you know, he was a criminal, were some of the big ones that we heard, because, like, how would this man end up here, besides that, you know, he was this criminal who was exiled by his people, and that was, like, a huge one we heard, and you can also see it on the... The church records where he attended, they would list like the family and but they would list him as servant slash you know Indian prince, and so there was a certain view that the community had of him or you know that they wanted to you know put on him for the reason why he was there.
2: You know, white people around Omar really made him into this sort of minor celebrity as they were using him for their own purposes. The colonization society was a really active part of the Owens life, the people who enslaved him. Uh, and they had this mission of showing that certain Africans were, quote, unquote, worthy of being returned to Africa, and particularly those who could ev- evangelize there. And so they saw in Omar a tool. They created all kinds of narratives about him, most many of which were incorrect. It's really interesting. You if, you, if you read the part of the story about Omar's letter, his first writing that we know of, he asks explicitly to be returned to Africa. And yet all of the white writers later would be like, oh, he's never wanted to return to Africa no matter how many times we've offered. And yet there it is explicitly in his writing. So it's just it's a, to me a perfect example of of what Omar was trying to say and who he was and how that was really co-opted by the white world around him. And we were trying to look beyond that to see what did he really write, who really was Omar. That was really the the number one thing Gavin and I were trying to explore.
0: Yeah, that was one of the really interesting things about that portion of the story, how people were definitely describing him or forming a narrative about him in a way that fit that goal. And part of that was portraying him as... Uh, having been fully converted to Christianity, but that turned out to be more of a question, right? of if that was actually the truth or not?
1: Yeah, you know, he's very devout Muslim and then he he is you know bought by this very religious family who immediately tried to bring the bring him into the Christian faith. But I think it's also their lack of understanding of Islam itself, where you know, which encompasses a lot of things from, Christianity to me, it's Omar, you know, kind of finds a way to still remain Muslim through Christianity in a way, but to them, they see him as this you know fully converted Christian, not really understanding Omar himself, which I think is you know part of it. And when you read his words, you can see really how he saw you know Christianity and Islam
0: and also too, part of this story as well is the understanding of of how many enslaved Africans were Muslim is that something that you looked into as well and what did you learn about that in terms of was Omar unique in that he brought his religion here or was that more common than people realize?
1: I think that was one thing I didn't know that was in fact a lot of you know enslaved Africans brought over here who were in fact Muslim it's not something like you really taught people like Omar. You know, Omar had been studying the Quran for 25 years. He had this whole faith background. You know, he had teachers he studied under to, you know, to learn Islam and to learn to write in Arabic and speak Arabic. And so that was something I didn't know that, you know, I learned through the story.
2: Yeah, I had no idea that there were so many Muslims among captives brought here. No idea. And the estimates vary, but one in five is kind of in the mid-range of the estimates. And if you imagine what happened to that faith, given that today, when we look back at slavery and the religion of enslaved people, we think of Christianity, we think of the black church and the just the foundational importance of the black church today. But back then, that was not the case. And in fact, the portrayal of of most African captives as being animists, which is really the story I think most people are taught in school— is uh, obviously many of them were, but you're missing a whole huge huge group of people and the faith that they brought over here that's really much more alike Christianity. And in fact, some of the scholars I talked to wondered if that wasn't exactly why that narrative was not taught, is because it's a lot more difficult to portray someone as the other if in fact their religion is a lot like yours. This was
0: a big and not common reporting trip. What were some of the things that went into this trip and and planning it and being able to you know, be successful there in a limited amount of time? What were some of those those logistics that, that went into the reporting trip itself?
1: It was luckily through the grant we received through the Pulitzer Center that we were able to go on this trip. And it, so it was for two weeks. The plan was to start in Dakar where we'd meet Mamaram and the team that we would end up traveling with. And We spent a few days there before we would travel up to St. Louis, which is on the northern coast of Senegal. And from St. Louis, we drive eight or nine hours inland to Podor, which is the largest city in the Fututora region, at least in that part. And from there, we would kind of venture out to various towns and places, meeting imams and historians, trying to find out who Omar was. And it was kind of difficult to really (laughs) figure out where to go because, you know, Two weeks is a lot of time. At the same time, it can really, you know, go by quickly, which it, it kind of did <laughs> while, we were, while we were there. And so it was kind of like figuring out what places to go to, what were places we need to go to, what were some of the places where we could kind of like, oh, we can maybe like take a day and check this out. So it was a lot of working with, you know, our team and talking about what what we were trying to accomplish and where do we need to go and, you know, what would work for the, for the story. I think we had done so much planning and just like thinking about what we want to do that really helped us.
2: One of the bigger challenges was the language barrier because very few people in Senegal speak English to begin with. And a lot of people speak French, particularly in Saint Louis and Dakar. But when you go inland, not as many. And then Wolof, which is one of the other main languages, is spoken broadly, but not as much in the Futa area to the north where we were, where most people speak Pular. So there would be times when we had Translations going from Pular to Wolof to French to English, and that was kind of interesting just to see the the connection of these all these cultures. But one thing we we tried to focus on while we were there was that Omar wrote a couple of times a place name, one where he has to be returned to Africa, and one in his once in his autobiography. But he wrote it a little bit differently each time. We were trying to figure out where this was, and that was what we kind of decided in the year that Gavin was mentioning. One thing we decided in that time was to really focus on where that was. Uh, maybe that was Omar's village. It certainly sounded like it could be based on what he wrote. Uh, so we then used that as sort of a vehicle to guide our travels. And we went a lot of wrong places, but I think we may have found his village or at least came close. Um, certainly culturally very close to what his village was most likely like.
1: And that was, I think, part of like the fun and interesting part of the trip was trying to find out what exactly this word that he wrote was. We did go to, like, along wrong places, but that in itself was a learning experience of meeting various people throughout Futa and also just, it was fun, frustrating. I remember, uh, you know, our professor and translator, Abdullahi Ghee, being like, Omar's making me crazy, you know? He's just like, we're going all over the place, because it's like, we traveled maybe 2,000 kilometers while we were in the Futa region, so we were just, any suggestion we got we were heading out to that town or or mosque just to see like if we could find anything
2: when we were in a place called Dimatwalo, and we went there and met with an imam who was one of the most learned men in that region and he read Omar's autobiography and his letter in a breeze, where some people have struggled. He wasn't really great at grammar. He wasn't uh, like a highly educated, trained writer of Arabic. That's not the reason he learned it. He learned it to read the Quran. He was a very educated Muslim scholar. But anyway, so when this imam read right over it, and he said, it's Kapeh, and Kape is pretty close to here, and I'll help you get there. And at that moment, we all kind of looked at each other and thought, wow... You know, this could really be it. When we went to Cape, I, I think a lot of the things that Omar wrote and the way he described where he was from fit. Now, we can't say for sure because the way he wrote it is, is it's just not obvious enough. It's not clear enough. But I certainly think it's a possibility. And again, if it wasn't precisely where Omar was from, it would have been a lot like the place.
0: What visually did you see there? Maybe some of those elements that said, Okay, we can't say for sure that this is the place, but something some things about it feel
1: right. Yeah, I think, you know, the little difficult challenge of photographing the story is Omar did leave us very few details, so I know like he says he's from Futatora, so I know like this is where he's from. So what I tried to do was show through photos just like you know the people, the place, the religion. There's a photo I took uh, at a chronic school, which you know has been something that has probably remained the same for hundreds of years. That I thought, you know, this could have been Omar's initial, you know, introduction to Islam, or just having tea. You know, the uh, teenagers having tea. You know, something simple. It's just like who was Omar? What? What was his community? That I think that was, you know, important to show, like what he was taken from. So that was was trying to show. And also just Islam itself, I think, you can say it's the same today as it was back in Omar's time. There's, I feel like, very little understanding over here of what Islam is, especially Islam in Senegal or in Africa in general. I think there's a certain perception of it, I think. And so I think that was important to really kind of illustrate, and hopefully people will see that. Also just, you know, visually just the landscape of Futa because I didn't know what it was going to look like when we traveled over there, so beautiful place, I, you know, I remember just walking along the banks of the Senegal River, we in Copay, and it just being like this very peaceful, just like quiet experience standing right there, and so that was part of it too, just finding those moments to show just the region I just want to know more about Omar's life, I mean we still have this 25 years of studying that no one knows we know as teachers and I think now just more attention more people researching Omar's life I think it'd be interesting to find out what exactly was at the time learning Islam and Arabic and what that meant to someone in Futur Torah. so I think the more people read the story and more people see it I think we'll get a lot more questions but a lot more answers to not just Omar's life but a lot of different other things which I'm excited to see.
0: All right, listeners, that's all for today. Again, if you haven't read their story about Omar, go read it now. Some of the audio you heard in today's episode was also captured by Gavin during the reporting trip to Senegal. You can hear more of it and see footage he shot as well in a video that can also be found at the same link. Thanks so much for listening. We will be back next week.